morning, everyone. Uh, thank you, Trevor, for leading us. Uh, I know lots of people are still away on holiday, but it's really good to see you here. Uh, particular welcome to James. I just met before the service. James is the pastor at Newtonards Road, Elam. James, it's really good to have you with us this morning. You're very welcome. Uh, during the summer, we, as a church, have been listening to a selection of alternative iTunes. And uh, so far, the, the playlist has included Psalm 1, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, 42, 43, 107, and 139. And this morning, we're going to read the lyrics of one of the seven Psalms of Confession. And it's the best known of the Psalms of Confession. And if you're here today, and you know you've messed up this week, you're all too aware that you got it wrong at times, maybe even badly wrong from your perspective. Or if on reflection you regret some of the things you've thought or said or done during the past 24, 48, 72 hours. Or maybe you sense distance between you and God. Distance that has been created or is being created by some of the choices that you've made or you're making. Or maybe you're here this morning and you just feel guilty or ashamed or possibly even uncomfortable in God's presence. Well then, this psalm is for you. In fact, and there's no surprise here, Psalm 51 is for all of us. Because what it does is it puts into words, and they are beautiful words, but they're very solemn words, and it puts into words the sorrow and the remorse that we need to express. We must express, actually. And thank God we can express in the reality of sin's devastating impact, not only on us, but on those around us, and ultimately, as we will discover, on God. Psalm 51 is a heart-searching psalm. It is a challenging psalm, but it is also one of the most liberating and freeing psalms in the entire Psalter. And before we take time to hear or to read the lyrics, I think it's really important to understand and helpful to appreciate some of the background context. Because what I want us to remember is that these words were written by a human being. Remember at the start of the series, one of the things that we did say was that the Psalms are often viewed as human words to God. These words were written by flesh and blood. David wrote what we're about to read in response to real events. These are grounded words. They're not irrelevant words plucked out of the air. These actually connect to specific events, to real events that happened in David's real life. And David, as we all know, is one of the giants of the Christian faith. He's a true hero, an incredibly gifted and admired man of God. In fact, later on in God's word, he is described as a man after God's own heart. But what we must also remember is that David made some horrendous choices. David committed serious sin if there is such a thing. But based on our standards, David really messed up. David sinned to a shocking degree. And we're probably all familiar with the story, but let me just summarize it for you. And it's found in 2 Samuel 11 and following. But David is king, and it's spring. 
But instead of heading off to war, like all the other kings do at this time of year, David decides to stay close to home. And one night he can't sleep, and so he decides to go for a walk on the roof, as you do. Only, thankfully, the palace roof was flat, and so that makes some sense. But from his vantage point, David sees his neighbor's incredibly attractive wife taking a bath. And understandably, temptation kicks in. Now, at this point, David has not sinned. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is inevitable. But now he faces a choice. Does David walk away, or will he entertain the temptation. It's the choice we all face day and daily. And David makes his choice. And instead of climbing back into bed, he sends for Bathsheba and he sleeps with her. And as a result of their casual relations, Bathsheba discovers that she's pregnant. Now it turns out that Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, is out fighting on David's behalf. And so he sends for Uriah. Because he has devised this rather sick get out and cover up plan. And what he decides to do is he's going to send Uriah home for the evening. Because he's he's bound to sleep with his wife. I mean they've been apart for quite some time. And therefore after the first scan when the pregnancy is made public. Everyone will think that Bathsheba is carrying Uriah's child. It's a brilliant plan. There's a slight problem, Uriah doesn't go home. Instead he heads downstairs to the entrance of the palace and he sleeps there. And word gets back to David that Uriah has done this and so David sends for Uriah and he questions him, why did you not go home? Which is a fair question. To which Uriah replies, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my master Joab and my Lord's men, note small l referring to David, my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Now that is hugely admirable, but it's completely the wrong answer from David's perspective. And so it's time for plan B. So David invites Uriah to hang out with him for an evening with the sole purpose of getting Uriah completely drunk because then he's bound to head home to his wife. Well, the first part goes according to plan. Uriah does get completely hammered, but he doesn't go home. Instead, he sleeps on a mat at the palace. It's now time for plan C to be hatched in David's head. And so what he does is he decides, I'm going to dispatch Uriah back to the front line and I'm going to send with him a letter to Joab and Joab was David's commander in chief and in the letter David instructs Joab to position Uriah on the front line of the conflict where the fighting is fiercest and then what he has got to do is back away from him and leave Uriah exposed and leave him isolated so that it's a cert that he's going to be killed which is exactly what happens And then as we know in the story, David marries Bathsheba and nobody lives happily ever after. And we'll come to that in a moment. Now in that whole sordid episode, David blatantly trampled over five of the ten commandments. So he steals. He steals another man's wife. 
He covets. He commits adultery. He murders. And Louis might say, well, David didn't actually kill Uriah. As far as God was concerned, David did kill Uriah. And then he lies. He conspires to cover up the facts. And then we have enter Nathan. Now, Nathan is a prophet. And he also operates as God's spokesperson into David's life. Someone who said it as it was. Someone who spoke truth into another person's life, even when that truth was really uncomfortable to hear. And just as an aside, you know, we can all benefit from people like that in our lives. People who challenge us, people who stretch us, people who probe us, people who provoke us, people who disturb us when necessary. And though they are hard to find, and they are really difficult to find, it's worth pursuing and seeking out that type of person because they can have a really positive, significant and saving effect on your life. And one of the questions I just want to ask you this morning is this. Who is it that speaks truth into your life? Who is it that knows you well enough that can say the uncomfortable things? Who can actually disturb you? Disturb some of the things you do, some of the choices you make. Nathan confronts David with this brilliant little parable. The problem is that this brilliant little parable really winds David up. And the reason it really winds David up is because it's a parable about him. And so Nathan says to David, For you have murdered Uriah and stolen his wife. And David's cover is completely blown. And he's confronted with his sin. And he feels dreadful. And he's shot through with guilt. And he reaches a place where he recognizes and he admits and he realizes his need of God. And it's against that backdrop and it's into that whole experience that David writes the lyrics that Trevor is going to now read for us. Psalm 51, I think you'll find it on page 573 of the Church Bible. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and are justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will come back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. The bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Thank you, Trevor. Sin matters. It must. And it matters because it offends a holy God. And it disrupts our relationship with him. But when we do sin and when we are confronted by it, we often make a mistake. And we maybe don't say this, but I think many of us feel this, but we often make the mistake that when we mess up, that God must now dislike us. That God must want to or does step away from us and want rid of us. And yet nothing could be further from the truth. Because God loves us. And the reckless grace of God is our greatest need. Now, if there's nothing else you hear this morning, I want you to hear that, that the reckless grace of God is our greatest need. It is not repentance that causes the Father's love, but rather the reverse. I want you to think about that. And nowhere else is this more explicit than in the parable of the prodigal son. It is the passionate love of God that causes us and that enables us to repent. Because God fervently wants to forgive us and help us get back on our feet again. But I often ask myself, why is that? Why doesn't a holy God just give up on us? I mean, when you look at the scale of David's mess-ups, surely it would have been completely understandable for God to just turn his back on this disobedient and wayward king. Who could have blamed God for that? And probably there are times in our lives whenever we wonder, why is it God that in light of the poor choices and the numerous poor choices, because I keep making these choices time and time again, and in light of the stupid decisions I take, God, why don't you just step away from me? Why do you want and long for a relationship with me? Why, God, don't you just wash your hands off me? Why doesn't God do that? Well, verse 1 explains it for us. Because God is a God of unfailing love and great compassion. And there are echoes here this week of what Sally led us in last week from Psalm 107. God is a God of unfailing love and great compassion. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to think about the fact that Psalm 145 says that the Lord is gracious and he's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's rich in love. That's the character. That's the nature of our God. Despite what you have done, however big or however small, and some of us struggle with this, but despite what you have done then, as you sit here this morning, I can confirm, based on God's word, that God's love for you will never fail. His compassion for you is immense. And you may think this morning, if only you knew or others knew what I have done. Well, I don't. They don't. God does. 
But what I do know is that based on God's character and on his nature, which never changes, I can express this morning, and I love the privilege of being able to express this in a congregation or to a congregation like this. God loves you. His love is unfailing. His compassion is great. And therefore, as a result of that relentless love, God longs to forgive you and restore you. But in order for us to embrace this, and this is where I think we fall down on this, but in order for us to embrace this, we need to grasp and learn the importance of confession, which is not only good for the soul, it's actually essential. And we need to also learn the importance of repentance and acceptance. But the acceptance that we're going to look at is maybe not the acceptance you think I might look at. David begins by acknowledging his sin. In other words, he calls it for what it is. He actually uses three different words in those first two verses. If you just have a look, he says, God, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. And these are the three most common Old Testament words for evil thoughts and actions. And David just gets them out here. He takes responsibility for what he's done. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't attempt to transfer the blame elsewhere. Instead, he recognizes these are, and you'll note, these are my transgressions, God. This is my iniquity. This is my sin. This is personal. And it's interesting how often I, maybe how often we, but certainly how often I, try to deflect my mess-ups and my poor choices and sin onto other people. How many times have you heard someone say, I'm really sorry I lost my temper there, but it's because I'm so tired. Or I'm really sorry that I said that, but I'm under so much pressure. Or the family are really getting on my nerves. Or the classic, the devil made me do it. Or the other classic, it's because of my background and circumstances. And our natural tendency is to shift the blame rather than accept the personal responsibility. And David knew he couldn't do this, and he didn't do this, so he didn't blame Bathsheba for leading him on. He didn't blame Uriah for not doing what he was told, and he didn't blame Nathan for making him feel guilty. Instead, what David did was he acknowledged his own sin, he confessed it, he called it for what it was, and then he was able to move on to the next stage. And I think that's a model that I know I need to follow. Stop shifting it. Accept responsibility for it. Secondly, what he then does is that he recognizes, I said this earlier, that sin is ultimately against God. Verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. Now hang on a wee minute. We know that sin hurts us. When we sin, our personal integrity can be damaged. When you and I choose to sin, our reputation may suffer, and certainly our spiritual lives are affected. But sin doesn't just hurt us, it hurts others. When we lose our temper, when we commit adultery, there is always a trail of damaged and hurt people. Uriah's life was literally destroyed because of David's sin. But ultimately, and this is vital to get hold of, but ultimately all sin is against God. David was acutely aware that every wrong thing he had done in that whole sordid episode was against God. And that is why sin can never be taken lightly. Because the moment I take sin lightly, it reveals that I have lost a right view of God. I've lost perspective. 
And something I said on Wednesday night is this, that one of my greatest concerns is in my own life that I would have a proper and a right view of God. And the moment I take sin lightly for whatever reason is proof that I have lost a right view of God. And David didn't take his sin lightly. In fact, the realization of what he had done crushed him internally. It broke him. Look at verses 16 and 17. You do not delight in sacrifice, God. Or I bring you that. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And a contrite heart is a repentant heart. And David was genuinely and truly sorry for his actions. And the reason he was genuinely and truly sorry for his actions was because he appreciated the seriousness of what he had done. And when he was confronted and when he was made aware of a sin, he didn't brush it aside, he didn't excuse it, he certainly didn't trivialize it. But what happens Or what happened is that it broke him. And it led him to a place of humble confession. And sin has got to disturb us to that level. And the second question I just want to ask you this morning is this. When was the last time the realization of your sin broke you? It actually broke you internally. Maybe externally, but certainly internally. Sin must be never something we become blasé about. I love the way the New Living Translation captures verse 3. And this is David speaking. For I recognize my shameful deeds. They haunt me day and night. Do they? Like, do they really? And I know what I'm tempted to think. Whenever I read a psalm like this, and whenever I know something in the background context, I I tend to think, well, look, if I committed adultery with my neighbor, and then if I arranged for the death of her husband, I reckon I'd, I'd probably lose some sleep. And yeah, that's true. But you know, if we keep grading sin like that, if we keep adopting that perspective, thinking, well, listen, my sin is not as serious as that person's sin, then we are in danger of missing the point. Sin, full stop, offends a holy God. And therefore it should bother us, it should break us, it should haunt us if we've got a right view of God. And David's sin unsettled him. But he was also aware, and again, this is really important, and you'd expect me to say this. He was also really aware that sin is not just a matter of what we do. It's who we are. And it's what we always have been. And David says this in verse 5, and this is, this is again difficult, and this is not popular teaching, I know that. Verse 5, that we are infected with this condition from the moment of conception. We are all sinners. In other words, there are no exceptions. We've got this inbuilt tendency to sin. And therefore, confession and repentance are absolutely essential disciplines if we want to reconnect with the God who created us and created us to be in relationship with him. And unless we do learn to practice the disciplines of confession and repentance, we will be robbed of an intimacy with God that God created us to enjoy. And so often I feel distant from God. And so often I lack that intimacy. And the reason is, I believe, is because I've begun to adopt a blasé attitude towards sin in my life. 
And so David acknowledged his sin. He recognized who it was ultimately that he sinned against. He humbly confesses. He repents of it internally. He's broken. And then he seeks restoration. But I want us to look for a few moments as to how David does this. Look at the way he articulates this. This is much more than a simple forgive me God. From verses 7 to 15, 15, there is a depth to his expression that I do believe provides a fantastic framework and model for how we go about practicing this discipline. And so he says, cleanse me. Literally what David cries out to God is, God, unsin me. I'm a filthy mess here and I need to be cleaned up. And then he says, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. And you know that in those days, to get a garment clean didn't just mean you turned up the temperature in the washing machine. But it meant an intensive scrubbing process that took time and energy. And what David was doing was, David was saying to God, God, I give you permission to work me over. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And then he says, create in me. In other words, do something new, God. You are the creator, God. You are the only one who can do something new in me. I can't do this for myself. Nobody else can do this for me. You, the creator, God, create in me. And what do I want you to create in me? I want you to create in me a pure heart. My heart's got contaminated. I need it to be disinfected. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. I want to stop giving in to temptation. I want to stop falling every time I'm faced with this choice. Please renew a steadfast spirit within me. I said this on Wednesday. I confessed to this on Wednesday. Confession's good for the soul, as I said. Not only good, it's essential. Tuesday night I was playing football. Okay, here comes confession time. Tuesday, and those of you who know me, and there's some here from Balnehens, know that I had to do this regularly at Balnehens. So here I'm doing it at Windsor. Uh, Tuesday night I was playing football, and it was a friendly. There were two guys sent off, so it wasn't a great friendly. It was against Dramara, who are our local sort of rivals. And, and the match was anything but friendly. As I say, a couple of guys got sent off and tempers flared and tackles came flying in and I got involved in it. And I said some stuff I shouldn't have said and I did some things I shouldn't have done. And I, 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 I come off pitches so many times I've done. I come off and I regret my actions. And as times like that, as I said on Wednesday, I have got to learn what does it mean to know the presence of God sitting in a prayer meeting as well as know the presence of God standing on a football pitch. How do I make the connections? And I pray to God, God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. And I've been playing football for that same team for 25 years. And yet I still keep going, God, I need you to renew a steadfast spirit within me. Give me the strength to stop giving in to an area of temptation that just plagues me. Do not take, David says, your Holy Spirit from me. You know, David knew that it was God's Spirit who equipped him. It was God's Spirit who directed him. And in the Old Testament, many people knew that it was God's Spirit who provided them the power to do what they could do. And so David says, please God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Do not cast me from your presence. Intimacy with you does matter to me, God. I know you've created me to be in relationship. I long to be in relationship. I long to know what it means to know you as my father. Don't cast me from your presence. You're well within your right to do it. I keep making poor choices. I keep messing up. Please, don't cast me from your presence. 
And restore to me the joy of my salvation. Because sin disrupts my relationship with you. And of course, sin is fun at the time. I have no doubt that those initial moments with Bathsheba were great. But the aftermath is heartbreaking. And it robs me, says David, of my inner peace, my inner joy. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I am weak, God. So weak. And I need your help to withstand. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. In other words, God, you're so good. I mess up. You forgive. And I'm going to tell people about you. I'm going to share the relentless grace of God with others. I'm going to share the fact that God, despite the number of times I mess up and how big a scale I mess up on, that you are there for me. That you want to forgive me. I want to teach transgressors your ways. And my tongue will sing, please open my lips and my mouth will declare your praises. In other words, I will thank you. And when I receive forgiveness from you, I'm going to tell people about that. I'm going to express it. I'm going to open my mouth. I'm going to come to a place of worship and I'm going to sing and worship to my God because my God has restored me. And in a sense, that's how I stand before you this morning. And it's such an honest, as you look down, it's such an honest and humble and amazing prayer of confession and repentance and resolve. And yes, we sin every day, and I know that, and at times we're not even aware of it. And again, I know that, but then let's be honest, folks. There are things that we think, there are things that we say, there are things that we do, there are things that we think, say, and neglect to do that we know is wrong that we are very aware of and, then I, and therefore we need to get before God and we need to acknowledge our sin and confess it and repent allowing David's model in Psalm 51 to inspire us and help us to get to grips with the reality of our sin. And the third and the final thing I want to say and I want to make reference to is this issue of acceptance. Now not, and this is what I'm saying maybe, but let's pray, not God's acceptance of us which I hope I have referred to And I know you can never emphasize that enough, but that's not really what I want to look at here. What I actually want to look at for a moment is our acceptance of the consequences of our sin in this life. Now, this is difficult for some people, I know. You see, God did forgive David. And as I said later on in the book of Acts, David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. But David's life and his family were never the same as a result of what he had done. Psalm 51 is a brilliant psalm of confession and repentance and forgiveness. But as we read it, and as we leave here this morning, please don't lose sight of the fact that David had to face up to the natural consequences of the poor choices he made. He was forgiven. And that is incredible, and that is liberating, and that is a freeing privilege. It's an encouragement, it's a fact. But the kickback of his sin was severe. Here's what happened to David. The son that he and Bathsheba had together got incredibly sick. And a week later died. Even though David pleaded with God, even though David fasted, even though David spent seven nights lying on the ground. Please remember, David was a king. This was a humbling experience for him. He fasted and he lay on his face for seven nights. And the reason that this little kid died, because of his sin, Nathan told him that that would happen. 
A second consequence, and I've got to be careful here because I recognize that there are some people who normally go out to junior church are still with us. But the second consequence is a pretty disturbing event. And one of the problems I think we have with the Bible is that we often sanitize it. And 2 Samuel 12, 11 and 12 records what God allowed to happen. And says that David's other wives were given over to a friend of David's. Someone who was close to David, one of his mates, who was permitted to have relations with his wives in broad daylight, in public view. And verse 12 says, You did it in secret, David. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And I want you to think of the shame and the offense and the horror of seeing your wife used in such a degrading way. And there were many other consequences. Murder became a constant threat to David's family and his household, some of them, rebelled against him. And if David had known the painful consequences of his sin, he would never have pursued, surely he would never have pursued the pleasure of the moment with Bathsheba. And when we mess up, The amazing forgiveness of God is available as we acknowledge our sin, as we confess it, and as we repent of it. But we often must learn to live in the wake of our sin. And again, that's not particularly popular teaching. So what is your response to this this morning? Where will you go with this? Will this psalm become an alternative iTunes in your life? Will you listen to it? Will you play it? Will you read the lyrics regularly or a cover version of them? And I urge you to do that. I urge you to add this to your playlist. And as we close this morning, here's what I want to do. It's 25-2. I want to give you some space and some time to reflect. And you may want to do that in different ways. One of the ways you may want to do that is, I'm going to show you the words from Psalm 51 again, but they're taken from... Uh, an alternative version of them from a book called Psalms Now. And you may just want to read through these and I'll just keep scrolling through them. We're going to play a piece of music, a piece of music by Coldplay called Fix You. And in a sense of that's where you're at this morning and you just read, you know, God, I, I need you to fix me this morning. I need you to fix me. So just in the quietness of these, just four and a half minutes, I give you the time, space and permission to be honest, to be real and to embrace these words. Thanks, Simon.